Uh, We're going to be in Jonah chapter 1, if you want to open your Bibles there. Starting a special four-week series today in the book of Jonah. And the title of our series is Hating the People That God Loves. Hating the People That God Loves. Loves. Interesting title, and we'll see how that plays out here in the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. By the way, Jonah is, uh, it's in the Old Testament towards the end. Go to the book of Matthew, hang a left, go eight books into the Old, the, the Old Testament, you'll find Jonah. If it helps you, it's page 812 in my Bible. So there you go. Jonah chapter 1. As you're making your way there, just introduce it this way. I had a friend recently post a question on social media. Here was a question he posted. He said, if you could go back in time to the 1950s, what would be the most difficult thing to explain to them about life today? So if you could go back to the 50s, what would be the most difficult thing to explain to them about life today? Without question, here's what I think is the best answer that was given to that. The person said this, the most difficult thing to explain would be that I carry a device in my pocket capable of connecting instantly with anyone on the face of the earth and accessing the entirety of information known to mankind, but I basically just use it to look at pictures of cats and to get into arguments with strangers. How many of you are guilty of getting into arguments with strangers on Facebook? Let's see a show of hands. Three of you are honest. The rest of you are lying. We have all, I think, gotten into different arguments with total strangers on Facebook or other social media platforms, especially during the last election. And there's a lot to argue about, isn't there? Right? There, there is plenty to argue about. Safe spaces. Antifa. By the way, we, argue, we can argue about that. Some people say it's pronounced Antifa. Some people say it's pronounced Antifa. And they even argue about that. So we can argue <clears throat> about safe spaces, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, the alt-right, white privilege, transgender issues, LGBT issues. Should it be LGBTQ? Should it be LGBTQ? Uh, T for cringe, you know, it's just, I don't know. Anyway, LGBT issues, gun rights, abortion. For crying out loud, there is even an argument about USC's mascot. Anybody hear about that? USC, they've got a mascot. It's a horse named Traveler. It's been their mascot for like 60 years. Now, the argument goes this way, that Traveler is racist because it's a symbol of white supremacy because he's a white horse. Now, it's as if the entire world has gone completely insane. It's like common sense is neither common nor sensical, right? And we see everything that's going on. I, I'm, I'm in Ireland. I'm on my, my social network. You know, I log into Facebook and I'm looking and then I go into the different news sites and I'm seeing what's going on and I'm seeing... An, A news story going on recently, just last week, a kindergartner being taught, a whole kindergarten class being taught about gender studies and taught that they can change their gender. And a first grader in the same school sent to the principal's office 
Because this kid remembered another kid from the last year, called him by his name, but now he's being accused of misgendering that kid because that, that child, due to this instruction given to him, has decided that he's going to select a different gender and identify with a different gender. Kindergarten, first graders. And I see this stuff, and as Christians, it can, it can be very confusing, right? And let's be honest. We look at the things that go down in the news and social media and others in the world today, and quite frankly, you can just get angry and upset. How many of you, you read different news articles, you get angry, you get upset? Yeah, see, <coughs> that we can all agree on, right? I just about lose my salvation every time I read, read the news. I'm like, I'm yelling at the screen or whatever. Here's the question. How, <coughs> how do we navigate in these diverse times? What should our Christian response be to these situations and circumstances that we encounter. How do we love God's people when we hate so much what they do and what they stand for? That's what we're going to be looking at today. We're looking at Jonah. Here's a guy. He's a prophet of God. And really, he's struggling with similar emotions. He's a devout man, great love for God, But what Jonah is struggling with is the command to love God's people who, quite frankly, are very easy to hate. Let me say that just a little little bit differently. What he's struggling with is the command to love people that aren't acting godly, that are easy to hate, but that God's called him to love. That's what he's struggling with. What do we do when we hate the people that God loves? Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Nineveh, a very wicked city. We'll get more into the history of Nineveh in just a minute. But if you're taking notes, first point you could write down, we're going to look at Jonah's mission. Jonah's mission. And it tells us there in verse 2 what his mission is. It was to go to the people of Nineveh. Now, this command by God is preceded in verse 1 by a picture of God and of what God himself has done for us. If you notice there in verse 1, it, it says that, you know, there, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and who is Jonah? He's the son of Amittai. Now maybe you might want to circle Amittai. Nearby you could write truth. That's what Amittai means. And while you're at it, you could circle Jonah, and nearby Jonah, you could write the word dove because that's what his name means. And right there off the bat, very first verse in the book of Jonah, we have this symbolic picture of the Trinity. We have Jonah, the son of Amittai. He's the son of truth. He's being sent by God the Father, and his name is dove, which is emblematic of the Holy Spirit. You'll remember Jesus. When he was baptized... In Mark chapter 1, what happens is that the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. Now, we use a dove as a symbol of peace. 
the Apostle Paul, he told the church in Rome, for the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Holy moly. I can't help you. Anyway, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That peace and joy can only come by revelation of truth that the Spirit brings. Peace and joy can only come by the revelation of the truth. Jesus said in John's Gospel, John 15, 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And so God directs Jonah to go bring truth to Nineveh and to cry out against its sin. Now, don't just hear that. That's significant. Just focus again on that for a second. What we have here is God's prescription for these rebellious sinners. A very specific prescription. He says the prescription of of dealing with those who are rebellious sinners is that we go, that we bring truth, that we cry out against sin. Now, we need to take note of that, that God sends his representatives to go to these people to bring them the truth, to cry out against sin. And can I just say that that message right there is very controversial and it's very unpopular. When we ask the question, when we wring our hands as Christians, when we debate with one another, you get two Christians, you get three opinions. And you get together and you're like, how do we reach people that are rebellious, that are hard to love, that, that, are, that are just drive you so crazy? How do you reach them? And if we were to say, look, you've got to go to them, you've got to tell them the truth, and you have to cry out against sin, crazily, Christians will debate whether that's the right approach. Well, this is the prescription that God gives. And it's very unpopular. See, one of the words we hear a lot of today is tolerance. And, and there's lots of confusion about what tolerance is and what tolerance should look like. Now, let me give you an illustration of what the most popularly accepted il, um, definition of tolerance is. It's, it's embodied in the coexist bumper sticker. You've seen it. The coexist bumper sticker in every letter in the word coexist is comprised of a different symbol. Now, there's different versions of this. One version is where the C in coexist is the crescent and the star from the the religion of Islam. The O is a Wicca pentagram. And and the the E is, you know, it's E equals MC squared. It's a symbol of science and and, and so on. You know, the X is the the star of David. and, and, And so you've got all of these different symbols all together spelling out coexist. And here's what the message is. The message of that of that theory of tolerance is saying, look, all of the world's religions are beneficial. They're all good. And if we just lovingly embrace one another, we can all live happily ever after. Kumbaya, let's just all get along and and coexist in love and in harmony. And I'll tell you, from my perspective, I see that this is rapidly becoming one of the most common belief systems in America today, the God of tolerance. 
hey, let's tolerate each other because you know what? Your truth is good for you and my truth is good for me. And you know what? Saying that Jesus is the only way, man, that's too narrow. It's just very narrow-minded. Well, listen, life is narrow. Life is narrow-minded. I'll give you some illustrations. I'm, I'm at the, the fire station years ago and we were in Indian Wells and, it, and the, our fire station backed up to a golf course. And we had pillowcases filled with old junk golf balls. And so in the evening, we would go out and we'd get our golf clubs and we would practice our swings. And we would, we would hit golf balls in, onto the golf course. Nobody was there. And, and it's just a you know, section there of the golf. So we just hit practicing our swings. Well, I was doing great as long as I was hitting my irons because they have a bit of a pitch to them because about 75 feet in front of where I was hitting, where I was teeing up, was a brick wall. So then I got to my driver. It has a little less of a wedge. And so it, it's going okay. The balls are clearing the wall until I got introduced in one particular moment when I didn't hit the golf ball high enough and it impacted the wall, I got introduced to Isaac, Newson, Isaac Newton's third law of motion. And that is that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And that golf ball hit that wall, and what do you think happened? I had to dive for the ground. It was going right for my head. It very nearly just took me out. Now, I could stand there and say, well, that's narrow-minded. I don't agree with this third law of motion. I, I just don't like it. So what, your truth is good for you, but I'll, that's not my truth. Now, how ridiculous is that? Similarly, the, there's, there's other laws in the universe. The law of gravity. I can say, I don't like the law of gravity. That's good for you. That's your truth, but that's not going to be my truth. All right, jump off a building. See how that works out for you. You'll be dead. The law of thermodynamics, same thing. I can open up the valve of a, of a, of a uh, <clears throat> propane tank next to an ignition source and say, I don't like the law of thermodynamics. And then I'll go up in flames when it finds its ignition source. You see, there are physical laws and there are spiritual laws and these laws are narrow. And, and, and so I'm all for loving people. I'm all for, for, for exercising tolerance and so on. But listen, when you understand that hell is hot and forever is a long time, then love dictates that we not remain silent. Amen? Love dictates that we not remain silent. We need, according to God's prescription here to Jonah, we need to go to them. We need to tell them the truth. And thirdly, we need to cry out against sin. In other words, listen, biblical tolerance doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to sin. Now, Jesus, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he said in John's gospel, when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he's going to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so what we see here in verse 1, this symbol of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we see this and we also see this picture of Jesus' mission. Why? Well, just as Jonah is being sent to cry out against sin and to call sinners to repentance, this is emblematic of Jesus who said in Luke's gospel, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. 
So like Jesus, we see Jonah's mission to call sinners to repentance. But very unlike Jesus, what we're going to see as we continue is that Jonah lacked Jesus's motivation for that mission. You see, what was Jesus's motivation for calling sinners to repentance? The most clear picture we have is John 3.16 and John 3.17. We all know John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in Jesus would not perish, but have everlasting life, right? And so that's God's motive, is that people wouldn't perish, but they'd have life. And then he goes on in verse 17, basically saying that God didn't, Jesus didn't come to condemn people, but to lovingly save people. Jesus did not come to, to condemn people, but to lovingly save them. Now, I want you to think about your average social media argument, and so quickly it devolves into words of condemnation. And and we couch them oftentimes when they're spiritual in nature with religious outrage, and, and, you know, we're refuting error or whatever it might be, but so often it devolves away from this Mo, this, this, the method that Jesus used. He didn't come to condemn people. He came to lovingly save them. Luke 19.10, Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that we are to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now that joy was not winning an argument. That joy was saving you. The joy was you. The joy was me. That's the joy that was set before Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8, my favorite verse in the entire Bible. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. And so God's motive is love. The, the famous theologian Karl Barth was quoted as saying this. He was asked if he could summarize his theological conclusions into one simple sentence, what would that sentence be? And so this great mind, this great theological intellect, he says, I can, he says yes, I can sum up my entire theology into one sentence. I would sum it up into the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, not that I know better than Karl Barth, I certainly don't. But if I could expand on what he said, I think I would add a song that I literally learned at my mother's knee. And I think it has particular importance right now in 2017. Here's this song, see if you remember it. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red, yellow, black, and white, we're all precious in his sight. You see, that's the truth that we're going to see Jonah refuse to see. That's the truth that Jonah will not see. And listen, that's the truth so often when we are engaged in some sort of social media, religious discussion, when we are watching the news and about to lose our salvation because of the amount of just ridiculousness that we see, that's the thing that we lose sight of. We lose sight of this red, yellow, black, and white. Ninevites. People marching in the Antifa rally. 
those who identify with LGBTQ, the Black Lives Matter folks, the, the Hillary voters, the Trump voters, the whatever. Listen, we are all people that God loves. Every last one are people that God loves. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that, that there isn't a truckload of error that is out there that there is downright heresy, that there, is, that there are things that we need to combat. I, what this message is all about is the heart behind what we are called to do as Christians. We are all precious in the sight of God. That person that you get so angry with on the news is precious in the sight of God. That person that you work with is precious in the sight of God. That uncle or that aunt that you argue with incessantly on social media, that you block on social media, is precious in the sight of God. The people that God loves, are people that Jesus died for, they're people that he wants to save. Well, what's the problem? Jonah 3, one, chapter 1, verse 3. God tells him to go, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish. 180 degree opposite direction, by the way, of Nineveh. He arose to flee from Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. So he spade the the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down, he went down, he went down. Hey, I'm not going to do that. Why? Why does Jonah not go where God has called him to go? Listen, it's because Jonah's heart was filled with hate. This brings us to the second point, second and final point of the message today, and that is Jonah's motive. We see Jonah's mission, but now we see his motive. Now Nineveh, where is this Nineveh that God called Jonah to go? It's an Assyrian city. It was founded by Nimrod. Nimrod literally means one who rebels. And true to his name, Nimrod rebelled against God. He was the son of Cush. He was the great-grandson of Noah. He's the guy that headed up the project to build the Tower of Babel. You may recall we looked at that when we went through the, the book of Revelation. And so true to his name, he rebels against God. Now, Nineveh, this place that he established, these people that lived there, Located, by the way, in modern-day Iraq, that's geographically where, where Nineveh was, notoriously wicked, awful people. Like, you study history of these people, you find out how savage they were. They used to stake people into the sand with their arms and their legs spread wide and just leave them there to, to let the elements and the wild animals eat them alive. They would cut people's eyelids off and force them to stare at the sun. One particular skill that they had, and archaeologists have found massive volumes detailing with great detail how they did this, they would skin their victims alive. And then they would dry out the skin of their victims and they would use it to make musical instruments, to skin drums and so on. They would impale people. They would sharpen up a stick and they would sharpen it to a fine point 
and they would basically sit their victims on this stick and then let their body weight slowly pull them down over this this thing until they they died. They would march people into burning pits. They would gouge out their eyes, chop off their hands, cut off their feet, cut off their ears. They were particularly notorious for ripping people's tongues out by the roots. They were a wicked, awful people. You ain't taking your family on a family vacation to Nineveh. We'll just put it that way. Now, you might think that Jonah said no and went in the opposite direction because he was afraid of going there. It would be like, hey, if I told you, hey, you you feel like going to Iraq right now? Many of us would go, I'm I'm kind of afraid to go there. I'll take a pass. Thank you very much. But Jonah, he didn't go there. He didn't refuse to go there because he was afraid. He tells us with his own mouth, when we get to Jonah chapter 4, here's what Jonah's going to do. Spoiler alert, Jonah, God will get Jonah to, to Nineveh. He's going to preach the gospel. The whole city is going to come to Jesus. They're, they are all going to repent in mass. The, the king is going to wear sackcloth and ashes. And for an evangelist, for a prophet, to go and preach a message where you have the entire city respond to the altar call, you would think that that would be a good day. Like, you know, you, you, put, you put that kind of stuff in your resume. Like, I led the, you know, preached a message where, you know, eat your heart out, Billy Graham. Eat your heart out, Greg Glory. The whole city, everybody, hundreds of thousands of people came to the Lord. Jonah was mad. The text says that he was exceedingly mad. The Bible not given to exaggeration, but what that means is that he was as mad as you can get when everybody repented. And he goes on to say with his own lips why he was mad. He was mad that God forgave him. He, and he says, he, he says to God in chapter four, you see, that's why I ran from you. That's why I tried to go to Tarshish because I knew you were gonna forgive them. And so here we have Jonah, his motive for not caring for these people, it's hatred. Let me ask you a question at this point in the message. Who is it that you hate? Who do you hate? Do you hate homosexuals? Do you hate Trump supporters? you hate Hillary supporters? Do, do, you, do you hate feminists? Do you hate liberals? Do you hate conservatives? Do you hate the people in the alt-right? And, and maybe you go at this point, come on, Pastor Ted, you know I don't, I don't hate the people. That's a harsh way to say it. But I certainly hate what they do. I hate, I hate the fruit of, of what it is that some of these groups are, 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 are perpetuating. How, how, you know, there's an infiltration in our schools of the homosexual agenda. They're indoctrinating our kids. Government policies are, are being passed that punish people for their beliefs. My employer, a Christian employer, has to provide birth control and has to provide abortions for people by law, conflicting with their belief. I hate that. I, I hate that these government policies are bankrupting small business owners, that, that people are, 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 you know, I watch an Antifa rally, I see everybody being so violent. I hate that. I hate the violence. I hate what's going on. 
I, I hate what the white supremacists are doing and all that they stand for. And, and isn't it, can I, is it okay if I'm going to get upset that, you know, they've established a, a you know, a, a hate-free zone in a college and that, that you can only exercise free speech in what they designate a free speech zone, which is out in the corner somewhere of the campus. And, and the only place that you can exercise free speech is there. And by the way, what they define as free speech is anything that would conflict with their embracing wholesale, all these wicked things. Isn't it okay that I get upset with that? Yeah, that's fine. But let me ask you the question. If you say, I don't hate them, I hate what they do. All right, but do you pray for them? Do you pray for them? Or do you just get enraged by them? Are you doing anything to reach them with the truth? Or are you just seeking to win an argument on social media? These are things that we have to take a walk with. 2 Timothy chapter 2. By the way, turn there, 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm just going to finish up there. And as you're making your way there, true confession time, I just have to tell you, this is a very difficult message for me to put together. It's a very difficult message for me to preach because I'm probably at the front of the line of the guy who's yelling at his television the most and getting upset and outraged at all of the, the just ridiculousness that is going on in the world. But I am so profoundly convicted because you know what? There is, there is a slippery slope between being outraged at the things people do and then becoming outraged at the very people that God loves. It's a heart check for all of us. See, here in 2 Timothy, we're going to be dialing into verses 24 through 26, but let me, let me set it up. Basically, getting to this point here in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, Paul's talking to Pastor Timothy, a young pastor that he's groomed, that he's raised up, and he's instructing him how to lovingly care for people in his ministry, and he talks about the importance of grace in the beginning of this chapter, how we are to be strong in grace, how we're to reach people for Jesus, how we're to raise up other ambassadors of grace to reach the lost. And he moves from there to then describe approved and disapproved workers. In other words, he's describing the right way and the wrong way to reach people for Jesus. And so then having set it up that way, here's what he says, 2 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 24, he says, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, and patience. How many of you, just right there in that very first verse, are completely gutted because of how you exercise yourself on social media? Yeah. I, just the first verse, right out the gate, I'm like, oh, I'm so convicted. Like, I need to get that tattooed somewhere. Like maybe on the inside of my eyelids so I just see it constantly before I go spouting off and getting in some sort of argument with somebody on social media. It gets worse. Verse 25, he says, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. Oh, I'll correct people who are in opposition, but how hum humble am I in the process? You correct them in humility if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. And here's the key, verse 26, and that they 
may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Listen, we need to understand, we need to keep in mind that people are not our enemy. Satan is our enemy. We need to understand that white supremacists, that Antifa members, that Black Lives Matter members, that Trump supporters, Hillary supporters, homosexuals, the alt-right, your Uncle Joe on Facebook, your neighbor next door, the person you work with, listen, they are all people created in the image of God. And they're all people that are precious to God. And what we need to be able to do is remember that God loves them and he's called us to love them as well. We are going to have beliefs and approaches to things that conflict. And what we need to do is we need to understand that God loves them, I need to love them, and we need to engage. We need to engage. Maybe you've heard the quote, preach the gospel, if, and if necessary, use words. St. Uh, Francis is supposed to have said that. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Listen, that's not going to cut it. Because that's like saying, feed the hungry, and if necessary, use food. All right? We, yeah, I mean, we get the heart behind that, that people need to see the love and need to see your action, and so on. But there are words that have to go with it. What I'm saying is, yeah, it's both and. That's what we got to get. We have to speak words of truth. We have to speak words that cry out against wickedness. Yes, but so many of us, we miss the critical next part, which is that these words have to be motivated by the love of Jesus. They have to be motivated by the love of Jesus, and they have to be connected to a committed relationship. We have to get connected to people in relationship. Now, I'll close with this illustration. It comes from a book called The Grace of Giving by a guy named Stephen Olford. And he tells the story of a man named Peter Miller. Now, this guy is a real guy. It lived during the time of the American Revolution. Peter Miller was actually uh, friends with George Washington. And Peter Miller was a pastor. He had a neighbor that made his life miserable. This guy was just wicked to Peter Miller. And, and easily a guy that we would write off and that we would just hit with both barrels of, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the gun that we have to fire to say, hey, look, you're wrong, you're in sin, you know, you're an idiot, you know, and we, we, he's somebody that you just would love to hate. Well, one day this guy got arrested. He got arrested for treason and he was sentenced to die. You might think an occasion for, for Peter Miller to go, well, that's what you get. No, instead, what did Peter Miller do? He walked 70 miles on foot to Philadelphia to plead for the guy's life. And so he goes to George Washington. He's pleading for this guy's life. George Washington says to him, hey, look, I can't grant you the life of your friend. And, and Peter Miller says at this point, he goes, he's not my friend. This is the worst enemy that I've got in the entire world. And George Washington, this is a true story. He says, you've walked 70 miles to save the life of your enemy? He says, that puts it in an entirely different light. 
He says, I'm going to grant you your pardon. And he did. And Peter Miller then took Michael Whitman, his neighbor, and he took him back home to their hometown, no longer an enemy, but a friend. God wants us to be friends of sinners. Isn't that what Jesus himself was called? He was called a friend of sinners. Listen, it's not that we... we, The Bible doesn't call us to compromise. We speak the truth. We call out sin. We need to be those people that stand up for righteousness. But in the process, we have to love people. We have to love them with the heart that God has for them. These are his kids. They've been created in his image. And maybe like Jonah, he's calling you to love them. Are you going to do it or are you going to say no?